Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's science, but not as you know it. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Dave Ansel. Hi, Dave. Hi, Chris. Now, coming up, we're going to be finding out how scientists have found a clever way to take the sting out of dentistry, and they're using a plasma gun to do it. Also, a new kit to make homemade bioethanol in your garage. Not sure about the legality of that one. And why Popeye was right about spinach all along. There's scientific proof now that it really does make your muscles stronger. That's all on the way, Dave. Thanks, Chris. Also, this week, we're finding out about mosquitoes, how they use smells to home in on us, and how we can use other smells to ward them off. We'll also be hearing how farmers can use natural smells to keep pests off their crops. Plus, Mira's been finding out how understanding insects' mating habits can also make them much easier to catch. The powder in this case contains the pheromone, and the idea with this one is males fly in, get covered in the powder, which contains the female sex pheromone, fly off, and they now smell like a female. This causes massive mating disruption. Oh, I love that. So there's going to be a male flying around with just loads of other males following him around. That's right, that's the sort of thing we hope will happen with this sort of control. Got a few friends who probably like some of that stuff. We'll catch the buzz on that one later. Also, you might need to put your fingers in your ears for this week's question of the week. I noticed that at times when I'd put earplugs in, chewing or humming or even breathing was really loud. I was wondering, why is it when you have earplugs in, the sounds from inside your head so much louder? certainly sounds good to me. The answer to that's coming up. Plus, if you've got a question for us about the science of mosquitoes and how to repel them, or you want to know why a mozzie bite just itches so much, just get in touch. Email chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Well, let's take a look at what's been happening at the world of science this week. Dave, what have you got for us? Well, one of the most unpleasant things in the world that many people find is the sound of a dentist drill, particularly if it's actually on your own teeth. So now one of the reasons why it has to be used so much is when a dentist is trying to put in a filling, they've got to get rid of all of the decay. They've got to make sure all the bacteria in there are dead or out of the way before they can put the filling in over the top. Otherwise, the bacteria will be in there happily living away and generally make, make more havoc with your teeth. So that's where the drill comes in. Yeah, so you, you need to drill away the worst of it always, but you also have to drill a bit more away to make sure there's no bacteria left. Okay, so what's the solution? Well, a solution that some researchers in China have been working on is what they call a plasma needle. Now, a plasma is a gas which has had some of the electrons ripped off violently. Um, you can do this by heating up to very high temperatures like you get in stars or by using an electric field like you get in um, fluorescent lights. Now, normally they're very, very hot, so you wouldn't want to put them anywhere near your mouth. Um, but this group in China, they've basically got a tube with just flowing gas through it and a very high voltage wire and they're pulsing high voltages through it. 
And this produces a very thin stream of plasma which comes out the end, and you can see pictures of it. It's glowing kind of blue. Um, and they've actually managed to, by working out exactly how it works and very carefully optimising everything, they've managed to get it so it's cool enough so you can just point at your finger, it doesn't do any harm. But it's got lots of really um, reactive chemicals in it, lots of ions and lots of free radicals, which when they reach bacteria, they just kind of play havoc with them and kill them. So the idea is you would direct this at the tooth around the area you're drilling, which would sterilise the drill site so that then you wouldn't have to take away so much tooth tissue. Yeah, so you don't have to be nearly as conservative or aggressive with your drilling and and you have to follow less drilling, there's more tooth left. Would you want a very high voltage cable running into your mouth though? Well, it should be insulated. Um, the wire is w- within an um, insulated tube, but it should be all right. They can also use it for um, sterilising other things like um, um, surgical equipment, which is very sensitive to high temperatures. And it doesn't harm human tissue? Doesn't. Well, I guess if you got in deep enough, it would but only the very surface and skin's dead on the surface anyway, so you're fine. Well, that's reassuring. I haven't been to the dentist for a long time, but then I've never had a filling either Wow! in my life, which um, is, isn't bad going, is it? But then I, I come from the bit of England, which has very, very high fluoride in the water. And for that reason, I think that's probably why, because we know that fluoride binds onto tooth matrix and it makes fluoroapatite, which is one of the hardest substances that the body can make, which wow. is very, very much, well, very, very difficult for bacteria to break down. So my teeth are all down to fluoride in the water. Um, well, it could also be down to breastfeeding, though, because uh, I was breastfed as well as a kid. And there's this big controversy that's been raging for a long time about breastfeeding and whether or not the reason that when you breastfeed, you end up with children on average, who are more intelligent than children who are not breastfed, whether that's because parents who are more likely to breastfeed are more likely to be educated to a higher level themselves. And so what you're seeing actually is just an effect of the parental level of education rather than the breastfeeding. So to try and answer that question, a guy in Canada called Michael Kramer, who's at McGill University, set up a study which he called ProBit. You have to have a really good acronym when you do a study these days. This one stands for Promotion of Breastfeeding Intervention Trial. Now, it would be very unethical to take a group of large, a large group of children and assign them to whether they were going to be breastfed or not. No one would allow you to do that. Instead, what he did was to target the clinics that follow up mothers who have just had babies and help them and support them. And so the idea is that by recruiting a large number of clinics, he assigned these clinics to one of two groups randomly. They either had a sort of do-what-they-do-normally clinic, so in other words, they didn't change anything, that was the control, or they had a a clinic where they had a program aggressively supporting and promoting breastfeeding in that clinic. And what they did was to recruit into the study 17,000 infants that were about to be breastfed, and they randomly, obviously, they went to these clinics, and so they then followed them up for the next six and a half years. And at the end of the study, the, cl- the children that had attended the clinic that was pushing breastfeeding very hard, we know this worked because 45% of the children attending those clinics were breastfed between the ages of three months and a year, which is a very high number yeah. compared with the mothers taking their children to the control clinics where they didn't do anything different. They just supported them and helped them with any issues they had. Only 6% of those children got breastfed. And at the end of the study, at the end of the six years, the teachers of the children reported much better academic performance, but the IQ tests speak for themselves. There were seven and a half IQ points increased in, in verbal scores in the children that were breastfed, 2.9 IQ points higher in nonverbal tests, and overall a, a nearly 6 IQ point increase in the children that got breastfed. So this strongly suggests, because these clinics were in lots of different social areas with very, very rich, very, very poor, this sh- suggests it's the breastfeeding and not the parents that are determining that increase in IQ. 
So on average, you have the same set of people in each clinic, on average, the same kind of section of society in each of the two clinics. Exactly. So there the was no significant difference, but the difference in the IQ scores was very significant. And to quote another study which came out at Christmas time and, uh, and didn't obviously control for that variable, Terry Moffitt did something similar and got a very similar result. And she said, what this shows is that if all children were breastfed, then there'd be twice as many gifted children. And that was off the back of her study at Christmas. And, and this study shows the same sort of IQ benefit. So it looks like breast really is best. Wow. OK. Well, now here's a slightly more interesting, a slightly different story, certainly. Um, now, there's been a huge rush for biofuels re recently. Um, and so even if the mathematics and the... Um, the environmentalism behind it is slightly dodgy. But now an American company has come up with a system which you can put in your garage which will generate you bioethanol. So, um, they Legal, call, legally? Um, well, we'll come to that later. Um, they, <laughs> they call it the eFuel 100 microfueler. And it's basically a brewery and a distillery in one easy-to-use package. <laughs> It's sort of like about. Are you sure this is American? This wasn't an Australian who invented this. It uh, sounds like a uniquely Australian type thing. It's like a big sort of um, wardrobe about a meter deep by two meters by two meters. What does it do? Um, basically, you feed it sugar and some water and some yeast. It has a big vat, about 750 liters of it, which um, brews this away, produces, turning the sugar into ethanol. Um, it then distills it. It has a distilling system, so it heats it up. The ethanol boils off first um, and then condenses it in another chamber, and then that produces about 96% ethanol. I was going to say, because when you do distillation, you don't get pure ethanol, which could damage an engine. So how do they get it I mean, pure? It will work in some engines, and if you run it on a hun if you run your engine on pure that, it will, it'll work fine. The problem is if you mix it with um, petrol, the two won't mix. And yeah, you exactly, you can't, you can't get the two to mix. So how are they getting around So that? what they do is they then push it through a special membrane, which will only let, um, which will separate the ethanol and the water. So you then end up with 100% ethanol and it's got like a petrol filler um, tube on the end. So you take it out, put it in your car, fill your car up. And they reckon it will cost about 30p a litre. However, in this country, there may be some slight issues. And as far as I know, both distilling your own alcohol is illegal and not paying road tax is illegal. So possibly one for only the States for a while. <laughs> but how would anyone know, I guess, is the question. I I, I couldn't possibly comment, Chris. Because you, you're, you're buying enormous amounts of sugar in the supermarket, but you just have a sweet tooth. <laughs> and don't buy any petrol, despite no, you I wonder if you get them on eBay before. or something. I wouldn't want to encourage you, Chris. It's sort of the ethanol equivalent of a bread maker, isn't it? You make bread at home, you just have this machine that does all the mashing and chopping and mixing for you. I've got one, it's great. Um, but this does the same, but for ethanol. Fantastic. That's right. Um, you can even put it, if you've got some leftover wine from a party, you can even pour that in and it will distill <laughs> that away. And, and one wonders whether you could sort of route the pipe out of the garage and into the living room in the back of your drinks display. You'd have an optic from the garage so that you could, you could top up drinks and make cocktails. And yes, and die from the high... <laughs> Who knows? Did you watch Popeye when you were little? I did. It was great cartoon, that It one. was, wasn't it? And, and he had this obsession with spinach. And I don't know what the basis of that is, whether there was the people who grow spinach sponsored the programming at some time, and that's why they decided to do that. Eat your greens or something, was that? I think there was a research project, and someone was looking at how much iron there were in different vegetables, and they got it wrong by a factor of 10 or 100 in this case of spinach. So by mistake, they thought it was really good. Spinach but has got quite a lot of iron, but it's, a, it's in a plant form of iron, which makes it much more difficult for for us to absorb. So it's not as good a source of iron as, say, eating a black pudding or a sausage or a steak. So if you've just had a baby, for instance, or you're a bit anemic, you're urged to eat those because it's, it's an iron that's already in a form the body can use rather than spinach. But back to Popeye, um, 
you say that all this is discredited about sort of spinach boosting muscle and all this kind of thing. In fact, there's a paper which has been published this week and researchers at Rutgers University in America have proved there are chemicals in spinach that do boost muscle bulk. And what they did was to make an extract from spinach and the chemicals concerned are called phytoecdysteroids. So they're a kind of plant steroid. And when they fed them to rats, they found that rats could grip onto things with 20% more muscle strength than control animals that were not fed this spinach extract and they also found that when they cultured human muscle cells in a dish and put some of this extract on they increased the amount of protein synthesis in other words how much contractile machinery the cells were making by 20 percent so it kind of agrees what they found in the dish and what they found in the in the rats here's the downside unless you like spinach very very much this is not going to be a quick answer to for you you've got to eat about a kilo of spinach a day to get enough of this stuff into your body but one interesting aspect of this piece of research is not just flippant is that they found that the effect this is an anabolic steroid effect it's a bit like injecting you with testosterone but what's really interesting is that there were no side effects in these in these rats when you normally inject someone with testosterone you see side effects you get hairiness you get skin changes which can make uh, acne because it makes the skin much uh, greasier that's why boys tend to get spots more than girls at certain ages and it also obviously can can cause other knock-on endocrine effects it can cause gynecomastia you get breasts and things none of this happens in the experimental animals because it doesn't seem to lock on to the same receptors as testosterone or anabolic steroids normally do it seems to be working in an entirely novel way which suggests to the scientists this could be really intriguing because you could have a way of boosting muscle and helping people to, to have more muscle bulk if they need that but without any of the negative effects of using normal steroids. So I guess we just have to watch this space. Does this mean we're going to have to um, go to the Olympic team and feed them lots of spinach? Well, also, you know, is that legal? If they start eating, you know, very, very high doses of spinach extract, um, will we be able to test for that? And also, is that legitimate? I suppose yeah. everyone can eat spinach, couldn't they? So there's, I suppose it's it is fair. Kind of hard to stop people eating, isn't it? Thanks, Dave. It's The Naked Scientist. We're talking this week. In just a few seconds, we'll be finding out about mosquitoes and other biting insects, how they're attracted to us, how we can ward them off, and also how you can also use vapours and plant smells to ward off pests that would normally destroy crops. If you've got any questions for us on The Naked Scientist, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Laying the facts bare, The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientist through Chris Smith and Dave Ansell. Dave, got a question for you here from David Burke. He says he's listening in Galway in Ireland and he'd like to know what causes ice ages and would it happen again? And if so, when, roughly? There's various things which call ice ages. I mean, strictly speaking, we're actually in an ice age now because for the last few tens of millions of years, the South Pole has been frozen, North and South Poles have been frozen, and there have been other periods in the Earth's history where they haven't been frozen at all. So over a long, long period, we are in an ice age at the moment. People aren't quite sure why that's happening. It's been suggested it might be something to do with the Himalayas growing and that altering the climate patterns in the world. But I'm not entirely sure of the reasons for that. Um, on a shorter scale, there's various other things which will affect the climate. Um, one of them is we get cycles of exactly where the Earth's pole is pointing. So sometimes it's almost vertical, at which point the seasons are very weak, and sometimes it points it's healed over. So this more. is Earth's tilt, isn't yeah. it? So it's about 23 and a half degrees at the moment, and and it wobbles a bit, doesn't it? The planet sort of wobbles backwards and forwards a little bit on its orbit um, over over. I think it's 
30,000 years or something yeah, like that. Yeah, there's various different cycles on different forms of vibrations. Uh, uh, but it. why should that make an ice age? It will, I mean, if you suddenly have stronger seasons, that will affect all of the way the um, water fl- water and air flows around the um, around the world, and that can only very subtle changes like that can affect the temperature of the whole world. And so that could be triggering ice ages. It's a sort of positive feedback loop too, isn't it? Because, I mean, there's this thing called a Milankovitch cycle where because the Earth doesn't go around the sun in a perfect circle, it's an ellipse, um, over time you get more of an ellipse than other times. And this means that more energy reaches the Earth sometimes from the sun than other times. And this means the planet goes into phases of cooling or warming. And once you're into a bit of cooling, it makes it easier for ice to form. And once you've got ice forming, you can have more ice and more ice reflects more light back because it's very white back into space. So the Earth cools a bit more and it goes into sort of positive feedback loop, making the Earth very, very cold. And then something breaks that cycle and we warm up again. Yeah, that's right. And it's also why we should be so worried about human-made um, climate change, because if we if we make a small effect, you never know, there might be a load of other positive feedback. You might find that there's less snow on the ground, so the world get, heats up even more than it would do just from the carbon dioxide. Yeah, so it's m- not just as simple as, as just carbon dioxide in the air. Yeah, basically it's all horribly complicated. Now I've got a question here for you, one from Jennifer in the USA. Why do women develop cravings at some points in the month? Ah, yes, my wife does this, chocolate. Um, Lots of women say that their intakes of certain foods change menstrually and favourites are chocolate around day 14 and also around day 28 when you're about to start your period. Um, It could be that the reason for this is similar to why a woman who's pregnant craves things allegedly um the the reason that's suggested is that if you have certain cravings it could be because your body is deficient in certain things and when you're going to get pregnant you must make sure that you have a ready supply with lots to spare of every single kind of micronutrient you might need in the body and so if you have a craving it makes sure that you binge on lots of things at the end of the month so that when you're then about to fall pregnant your body's already replete with everything you might need so it's a bit like um if you're short of water you get thirsty yeah I guess so, but what, what you're basically doing is overeating in preparation for a pregnancy because that way you eat lots of green leafy vegetables and you have lots of folate, you have lots of B vitamins and iron because you need lots and lots of things because the fetus is like a parasite, isn't it? It's going to sort of steal lots of things from your body and if you haven't got enough to spare, the baby's health can suffer, but then so can yours. Cool. It is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Dave. If you've got a question for us, we'll be catching the buzz about mosquitoes shortly and how you can ward them off. Email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. Still to come, we'll be discovering how you can arrange plants around a farm to keep the weeds out. But first, Ben braves swarms of biting insects for this week's Kitchen Science. Hello and welcome to Kitchen Science. This week I've come to Rothamsted Research Institute where I've met up with James Logan. Hi James. Hello there. I'm also here with two volunteers from Sir John Law's school. Jason, hi Jason. Hello. And Emma, hello Emma. Hello. We have a rather unusual experiment here today. Usually we do something that you can try out at home, but I would hope that you wouldn't want to try this out. Could you describe what we have on the desk? We just have a box with a lot of mosquitoes in. (laughs) I hope none of them are going to get out, really. (laughs) We're not going to get bitten. What are we actually doing with them? Well, what we're going to do is look at how attractive people are to mosquitoes. The mosquitoes actually respond to chemicals given off in our body odour. So if we place our hands on top of the cage, there's a a sort of mesh screen, and the mosquitoes respond to the odours, fly up to the mesh screen, and then they think they've landed on you, so they start probing through the mesh. And we can count the number of mosquitoes that are attracted to a person. 
So do people vary in attractiveness? I would have thought that we're all a good meal for a mosquito, so they'd bite any of us equally. Yeah, they certainly do. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence that people differ in their attractiveness to mosquitoes. And we've shown it scientifically. And what we've shown is that it is, in fact, down to the odours that we produce. So some people produce different odours, which affects the mosquito's behaviour. Seeing as it's my fault that we're all here with the mosquitoes, I guess I should go first. So what should I do to find out how attractive I am? Well, what I want you to do is place your hand above the cage, um, not touching the mesh. So there's a cradle to put your hand on. Just hold it there for 30 seconds, and I'm going to count how many mosquitoes fly up towards it. So I shall just put my hand above, and uh, if you wouldn't mind starting counting. Okay, so we've got one mosquito up there already. You can see them now sort of buzzing around inside the cage. That's because they're being activated by the chemicals. And one of the chemicals that activates them to fly is carbon dioxide, which is given off in your breath, obviously, but they can't smell that from here. What they're smelling is the carbon dioxide given off through the skin on the hand. But there are other chemicals as well, and those are the chemicals that draw them in at a short range. There's about 30-odd mosquitoes in that cage, and there's only about two or three that have flown up towards your hand, so it looks as if you're not actually that attractive. Well, I'm relieved to hear that I'm not too attractive. Who would like to go next? I'll go. (laughs) So they're all still definitely buzzing around. I'm guessing they're still active from when I had my hand there. Yeah, they are indeed. That will clear quite soon and they'll start to react to Emma's odours. So Emma, do you normally get bitten by mosquitoes? Um, I just really get bitten on my feet normally, nowhere else. (laughs) It must be said that people's feet often smell. Does this make the feet more attractive? It does to some mosquito species, certainly the uh, Anopheles mosquitoes, which are the malaria vectors. The other reason that people get bitten on their feet is is when the the odour plume of your body odour sort of comes from your body, it sort of falls away to the ground and mosquitoes locate you by flying along quite close to the ground and that's the first part of the body that they hit. So it's more that your feet are the first bit of food that you offer? That's right, but the chemicals on the feet certainly are different. Uh, Bacteria can have a big effect on the types of chemicals that are produced by the body. Certainly there's a lot of bacteria on some people's feet and that's why they smell differently. Well, Emma's had her hand there for a while now. They're certainly buzzing around, so they're certainly activated and and we've actually had about uh, seven or eight landing just in the last uh, few seconds there. So, So actually I think she's slightly more attractive than you are. So I guess we should see how attractive Jason is now. Okay, well, Jason's had his hand there for a little while. How many have we seen landing there? We've got about two there. (laughs) So not a very attractive person. Is there anything that we can do? Is there anything we eat that might help repel them? There's a lot of anecdotal evidence that some food you eat uh, repels mosquitoes. Garlic is one of them. Marmite is another one. And the reason for that is that it contains vitamin B12, which apparently repels mosquitoes. But in actual fact, there's no scientific proof to support that. And most scientific evidence actually suggests the opposite. There were some experiments done at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and they actually showed that if you eat vitamin B12, it makes absolutely no difference to your level of attractiveness. So I would never recommend that you, you use food as a way of protecting yourself against against mosquitoes. And in fact, last night I actually ate a lot of garlic in preparation for you coming just to show you that that it doesn't actually work. So if I stick my hand in the cage, I should get bitten. It seems strange that garlic would repel them when you consider how when you eat lots of garlic you smell so much more. You'd think that they'd be able to smell you from miles away. 
Yeah, I mean, eating garlic, you can smell it yourself. And, and the types of chemicals that you can smell are sort of sulfur-containing compounds, really sort of nasty, uh, eggy kind of smells. And the key question really is, does the mosquito respond to those key chemicals? Because the body actually produces somewhere in the region of 400 different volatile chemicals. And the mosquito doesn't respond to all of those. It only responds to a handful of those chemicals. And that's the question. Do those chemicals that they respond to change when you eat something like garlic? And the answer to that really is no. So Jason and I are are equally as attractive to mosquitoes, it would seem, and and Emma's currently winning, if you could call it that. Uh, Would you like to have a go yourself? Sure, yeah, I'm usually fairly attractive to mosquitoes, so uh, yeah, I'll give it a go. Now, I've heard that female mosquitoes are the ones that bite you. Is that true? It certainly is, yeah. If you actually look inside this cage, you can see we've actually got males and females. So the ones that are sitting around the edge there and not moving at all, uh, these are the males. So if the males don't bite, then where do they get their sustenance from? Well, all mosquitoes actually feed on nectar. That's their sort of energy supply, if you like. Females need blood, and the reason they need blood is to produce eggs. So uh, obviously a male mosquito is a more friendly mosquito. They are very active with your hand on there. Uh, How many have you seen land so far? Um, Well, at the moment, there's about nine up there, and uh, they're sort of probing through the mesh, trying to get to my skin, so they think they've actually landed. But as you can see, there's a whole sort of swarm below my hand, so they're certainly uh, very attracted to me, unfortunately. I'm guessing that working with mosquitoes is not, in fact, the best line of work for somebody who's clearly very, very attractive to them. Well, that's true, but it is a good incentive to find a control. Well, that sounds like very good encouragement to me. Later on in the show, James will be putting his bare arm right into the box of mosquitoes to see if insect repellents really do repel. Thank you very much, Ben. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and Dave Ansell. And we're also live in Second Life every Sunday. That's six o'clock here in Britain, but also in Second Life, times are different. So it's ten o'clock in the morning, Second Life time. And if you want to find us in Second Life, we are in the Silands continent. So you go into Second Life and you look up Silands and then you look up Naked Scientists and you see our mansion there. And you can find all the other people who are gathered listening to The Naked Scientists. Hello to all of you. Uh, and if you want to talk to them and meet them, you can do that because there's lots of people in there all chatting about what's going on on the show. So it's great to have them with us. Now, uh, James Logan, who you just heard in the piece with Ben, is actually here with us in the studio, and he's also here together with Tony Hooper, who's one of his colleagues. They're both at Rothamsted Research. Tony's working on ways to use plants to repel pests away from crops, and that also actually includes repelling pest weeds, which would be ideal in my garden, but he's coming on in, in a second to talk about that. But first, James, let's talk about your work on mosquitoes. I guess uh, it sounds a bit flippant talking about mosquito bites, but in the grand scheme of things, mosquitoes are probably the world's dangerous animal, aren't they? Uh, quite possibly, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not actually the mosquitoes that, that cause uh, the problem. Of course, they bite and people can react differently to their bites and you can have a, quite a severe re- allergic reaction to the bites. But it's actually the, the pathogens that they carry, the diseases they carry, such as malaria and dengue fever, filariasis. There's, there's a whole number of diseases that they carry and, of course, those are the, the diseases that, that cause the problem. Something like 300 million cases of malaria every year. That's right. I think Three it's, million deaths. It's huge numbers. Exactly. Almost two million people die every year. Yeah, so understanding what lures them towards us is therefore absolutely crucial in trying to tackle that problem head on because we know that just spraying them doesn't work. Absolutely, yeah. The more we understand about how they find us in the first place, then the better we can develop control methods uh, to stop that from happening. Those few hundred chemicals that you were telling Ben ooze out of our skin and, and that the mosquitoes are sensitive, at least to some of, what actually are those chemicals and what are they doing? 
Um, well, there's a whole range of chemicals that they respond to. Um, they respond to uh, the main chemical they respond to is carbon dioxide, uh, which is mainly given off by our breath, but also is released through our body as well. But other types of chemicals, um, such as one octane three oil, um, which is also given off, it's an alcohol, it's given off in our breath, and certain acids as well, which which are found in quite high amounts uh, on your feet. Um, and these types of chemicals are, are very attractive to mosquitoes. Ammonia is another one as well. What are they? Are they just naturally produced by cells in the skin and the mosquitoes have learned that this equals lunch and so they home in on them? Absolutely, yeah. They're, they're definitely, uh, some, some chemicals are released through the skin. Other chemicals um, are actually produced by uh, the bacteria on the skin. So bacteria do play a very big role uh, and they sort of convert the chemicals into more volatile chemicals that the mosquitoes find attractive. How do you actually do the research where you take a person and then look at what's coming out of them to work out how they're, they're attractive, whether they're attractive or not, and also then what those chemicals are that are doing that. Um, well, we use a, quite a bizarre technique. We, we place people inside uh, large silver bags, big thermal survival bags that are commonly used for, for mountaineering. Um, and they lie in there for two hours and we extract their body odours from the bag. Uh, and Could be bad. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, we trap, trap the chemicals onto a filter and strip the chemicals off the filter, which then gives us a liquid extract that we can then analyse. Uh, and we have all sorts of weird techniques whereby we can actually look at the, the response of the receptors on on the antenna of the mosquito, which is its nose, um, to detect which chemicals that the mosquito actually responds to in this very complex mixture. Ah, and, and so the chemicals that mosquitoes respond to, are they only attracted to us? Mm. Or Because some of the people in, in the kitchen science with Ben were not attractive. You were very attractive, he wasn't very attractive. So is it that he's just got less of these chemicals, or is he making something else that's in fact making the mosquitoes go away? Yeah, well, it, it might be quite logical to assume that if you uh, weren't attractive to mosquitoes, then you just simply lacked the attractive chemicals. But of course, we all breathe, so we all produce carbon dioxide and these other very attractive chemicals. And, and there is something special about people who seemingly never get bitten. And, and what we find is that those people are producing uh, certain chemicals in much higher concentrations and when tested those chemicals have a repellent effect so it's almost as if your body's got a, a sort of natural defense system against these insects. And if you test people who live in areas where there are more mosquitoes that spread diseases I'm thinking of places like Africa where malaria is endemic and other diseases like that. Do you find that the population naturally make more of these chemicals? Um, that's a really good question and you probably would expect that in a place such as Africa where the selection pressure would be quite high. Um, at the moment we don't actually know. Uh, there was a study that was done fairly recently that showed that... Um, uh, 20% of a population in a township were most susceptible to contracting malaria and the other 80% seemed to be fairly protected and, and the authors suggested that that could be to do with uh, those people producing repellent chemicals but nobody actually knows, we haven't done a big enough study really to be able to tell that. There was a paper I think it was published in PLOS a couple of years ago which was very interesting because they took children from the local school that had malaria and they put them at one end of a, of a piece of apparatus and they had children who were malaria free and put them at the other end of the apparatus and then they put some mosquitoes in the middle and, and counted where the mosquitoes went and when the child was highly infectious from malaria all the mosquitoes flocked towards the malaria ridden child and then when they repeated the experiment with mosquitoes that were themselves malaria positive they avoided the child with malaria and went to the people that didn't have malaria so how are they doing that? Yeah, that, that, again, that was a really interesting study. Um, and, and what they showed was that it, it wasn't to do with uh, things like bod uh, body temperature and things like that. We know that mosquitoes are attracted to heat and to moisture. And of course, when you have malaria, you do, you do get a fever. And so you're very hot. And, and some people might think that's the reason. But, but these, uh, these scientists actually showed that, that it was all to do with body odours. So the, your body odour was changing, basically. And at the point at which the malaria parasite was most transmissible between the human and the mosquito was the point at which they were most attractive which is quite incredible.
It is incredible. We'll come back to malaria in just a second because I've now got a host of emails and questions for you, James, including why certain mouthwashes might be good mosquito repellents, which is an intriguing thought. But let's turn to Tony because, Tony, Tony Hilby, you, you work at Rothamsted as well. You're looking at how plants actually produce chemicals which themselves can repel pests. Yes, that's right. As uh, James was ta- talking about just now, plants themselves produce uh, two, three hundred compounds which are volatile chemicals on the surface of the plants. It's what gives them the smell to us, but it also gives the smell to the insects that are uh, trying to colonise that crop and um, cause damage to it. So the, so the insects are sniffing out lunch by following the odour of the plant, is That's what you're right, saying? That's right, yeah. Uh, and can the reverse also be true? Because James was saying that you can get humans that are naturally repellent to mosquitoes. Are there plants that are naturally repellent to plant pests? In this country, so aphids are in particular a, a nuisance pest for arable crops, and they have designed their olfactory system um, to go to the crop and find the specific one that they want to want to have for lunch, as it were. And so there are compounds given out by that crop which that particular aphid really wants to go for. In the same way, it's not going to waste time going around trying to find um, the crops where they're not there. So there are some chemicals given off by non-host plants, the plants the aphid doesn't want to go to, and they can repel those aphids as well. Oh, I see. So by planting those near to a plant which you want to have as a crop, you could mask the smell of the attractive plant That's with right. the nasty one, and then That's you right. repel the pest. Yeah, I mean, we have, uh, we have a project going on at the moment in, um, in Kenya, um, in East Africa, and in that region, the, the people there, they're subsistence farmers, and they want to grow maize. Maize is a very important crop there. It's subsistence farmed. Um, but the, the maize is, is attacked by a stem borer pest. That's a moth which lays eggs on the maize, and the, the eggs hatch and create caterpillars. Caterpillars eat out the centre of the maize plants, and they fall over and die, so there's no food. So we've put together a push-pull system in that part of the world where we're using plants to control what those moths are doing. So around the outside of a field, we have a plant which is very, very attractive to the moths. So the moths will want to go there rather than go to where the maze is. So the maze is protected from those moths. At the same time, in between the maze, which is growing in the field, there are some plants planted which give off a chemical signal to the moth that would come in that says these plants are already damaged because the, the volatile materials that they give off simulate or are the same chemicals as what would be produced by a maize plant if it was damaged. So any insects that are inside the field um, looking for a good place to lay their eggs, they're going to think, that's not a good place for me. Because it's already been half damaged. They're thinking because the plant, they think someone else has got there first and already eaten all the food. That's right, the signal tells them that this is not a good place. Okay, so so it sounds great on paper, but does it work? I mean, if you do objective studies on this and, and count numbers, does it work? Yes, it works very much works beautifully in East Africa at the moment because there is such a lot of damage caused by these stem borer pests um, and the expense of having pesticides in there is just not possible for subsistence farmers. So while their yields are quite low because they haven't got chemical inputs like we have in, in Europe and in the first world, um, because those inputs, they just can't, can't do it, the, the yields are very low. So if you can increase those by using this sort of push-pull approach where you're pulling the insects out into those trap crops or pushing them away with the intercrops away from that maze, then you get significantly more yield and sort of two to four times the, the yield is, is common in these areas. 
What about other kinds of pests? Because it's not just insects that are a pest. Uh, elephants are as well in Africa, and I don't expect you to do anything about that, but plants themselves can be a pest. You know, I've got bindweed galore in my garden at home. Um, I know that there are certain forms of that and v- variants of that which can be a real nuisance. Is there any way of dealing with plants themselves? Well, plants themselves are also producing chemicals through the roots. Uh, we've talked about volatile chemicals that insects um, locate or avoid their, their host or host person or host plant. Um, but plants also produce materials in the soil, and that's a sort of a battleground as well. So they'll be trying to compete with other plants. So they can literally fend off another plant oh, if yeah. they decide they don't like it by yep. secreting something yep. into the soil. That's right, that's right. And, and that how can, can you use from that? the roots, or it can be from the foliar or the material above the ground, which then falls into the earth. And how can you use that to, to control parasites? Do you, do you have plants that are friendly to crops but unfriendly to weeds then? Well, th- this, uh, this project in Africa that I was talking about just, just now, um, one of the crops that we put in between the maize to repel the insects, when that was used in the field situations, we found that it completely stopped a parasitic weed which normally attacks maize as well. From, from parasitizing the maize. This weed's called Striga hermanthica. It's a, it's a striga plant. It's a witch weed and causes massive, massive, massive damage. And we found that the intercropping that we use, this is, the intercrop in particular was called uh, desmodium or silver leaf. Uh, that's the common name. This was producing chemicals in the roots, naturally producing chemicals in the roots, which it uses in its own ecology. And these were affecting these striga seeds and preventing them from germinating in the soil and then attacking the maize plant. Absolutely ingenious, and I suspect that's had a, a knock-on effect for the yields. Thank you very much, Tony. We'll come back to, to Tony and James in, in a second because we've got quite a, a host of questions for them, but Richard is on the line. He's in Sawston. Hello, Richard. Hi, Al. What can we do for you? Well, I'm, I'm interested in the um, mosquitoes thing because um, I'm obviously not very tasty to them, but my wife is. Um, and we can spend the same sort of time out in the garden, and I come in without a bite, and she's absolutely covered. But the other thing is that hers always come up much larger than mine. They last a lot longer, and within two or three days, mine have gone, and hers are just getting into their stride, and they'll be there for about a week or so, and I just wonder whether there's any link known between the two things. Well, it's all down to an immune response. People think that when you react to a mosquito bite, it's something the mosquito's done to you, a bit like a sting. That's not the case. It's, in fact, what your immune system is doing to you that's making the mosquito's bite unpleasant. Uh, When a mosquito bites you, what it does is to insert, and it's only the females that bite, actually, because they need the blood because it's high in protein, because every time they want to lay eggs, they need a high-protein meal, and that means you. Uh, They insert their proboscis, their mouth parts, into the skin, and they probe around until they find a blood vessel, usually a capillary, which they can get into and then they start drawing blood but to stop the blood from clotting and also to ward off your immune system whilst they're doing that they inject a cocktail of about 20 proteins which go into the local tissue and they keep the mosquito having a nice dinner uh, without harm coming to it and it also means that you don't know it's there immunologically speaking. Problem is that it leaves the vestiges of its saliva in the wound site and this means that when the mosquito's flown away your immune system then flocks in and begins to react to it and it's reacting to that foreign protein and that means as you get more bites over your lifetime you get better and better at responding. Now that means some people get quite vigorous reactions to mosquitoes, other people the uh, immune system tends to damp down its effect. It's a bit like having sort of um, injections to damp down allergies for example. It just depends on how your immune system 
system is rigged up and some people have a form of their immune system that means they react more and more vigorously, sometimes till it gets really quite severe, as James was saying earlier. In other people, it tends to become less severe. Maybe you're of the latter type and your wife is of the former. And I hope that answers that question. Thank you very much for your call, Richard. Dave. Well, staying with the theme of chemical attraction, it's now time to find out how a new pest control method of attracting male insects to one another rather than females could solve many problems for all you apple growers out there. We sent Mira Senthalingham out to the countryside to find out how. This week, I've come down to the fruit gardens here at the Royal Horticultural Society site in Whistley, Surrey, to find out how the chemical signals that insects use to communicate with one another can also be used to stop them from damaging plants and crops. Apple growers, for instance, often find their profits quite literally being eaten into by the larvae of codling moths. It's possible to solve the problem by spraying regularly, but an alternative, more environmentally friendly approach is to use a device known as a pheromone trap. An RHS entomologist, Dr Andrew Salisbury, is with me now to explain how this works. So, Andrew, firstly, what is a pheromone? Well, the actual technical definition is it's a chemical that mediates the response between individuals of the same species. There are several different types. The main one people have heard about probably is the sex pheromones, where a male or a female releases a chemical and attracts the opposite sex. But there are also aggregation pheromones, which just attract both sexes, and even alarm pheromones, which cause insects of the same species to move away from each other. The pheromone traps actually use sex pheromones, though, to trap the insect. How do sex pheromones chemically work in order to attract a male mate? Basically, the female releases the pheromone and the molecules are picked up by specific receptors on the male's antennae. The actual number of molecules they pick up can be very small. This causes a response in the male to follow the pheromone stream upwind until they find their potential mate. Knowing this, how do pheromone traps exploit it? Pheromone traps basically exploit it by using a synthetic version of the same pheromone to which the males are attracted. The males fly to the trap, hopefully in preference to their female mates. But how are the pheromones actually found and known about in order for them to be used in these traps? Well, basically, entomologists and other scientists use olfactometers. These are pieces of equipment that are choice chambers, where in one side of the equipment you have a stimulus, which, in the case of looking for a pheromone, may be a female moth. A male moth is released into the equipment, and you can't see the female. Now, if he moves towards the female, and if significant numbers of the males move towards the female, then you can say there probably is a sex pheromone. OK, then how do you find the actual chemical? Well, first of all, you have to collect the odour of females, and this is basically done in glass vessels, and air is drawn over a polymer that picks up volatile organic chemicals. You then take the volatile organic chemicals and basically use things like gas chromatographs, mass spectrometers, to come up with identities of chemicals in the mix that you've collected. But, of course, you don't really know which of the chemicals you've collected affects male behaviour. So the next stage is to actually cut off male antennae, stick them in an electro-antennogram and pass the various chemicals over the antennae and if you get a peak, you know, the antennae responds to it and you've made progress in identifying the pheromone. And then you take it out to the field and do field trials. If all goes well, eventually you'll have a product. We've got a pheromone trap here in front of us. It's hanging on an apple tree and it's kind of like a tent with a base attached to it. So why do they have this particular structure? The open-ended tent structure is partly to keep the weather out and larger animals such as birds uh, actually getting into the trap. The base actually contains a sticky substance, a non-drying glue, to which the insects you're trying to attract get trapped on. How does this help pest control? 
Well, there is obviously going to be some mating disruption here. Those males which get trapped don't mate with females. But the main way these sticky traps work is that it can tell you when the peak emergence or peak flight period time of this particular moth is, which can tell you when or even if it's worth using a chemical. Coddling moth can be around for two months and laying eggs for two months and spraying several times during that period is an economic and not very environmentally friendly. So you say this sticky trap is more associated, say, with amateur gardeners. We've got another one hanging on a tree over on this side of the garden. This uses another method in order to affect mating, does it? Yes, there's, uh, as you can see, no sticky base on this one. There's just a tray with uh, little dimples full of powder. The powder, in this case, contains the pheromone. And the idea with this one is the males fly in, get covered in the powder, which contains the female sex pheromone, fly off and they now smell like a female. This causes massive mating disruption and hopefully eliminates the need for chemicals. Well, I love that. So there's going to be a male flying around with just loads of other males following him around. That's right. That's the sort of thing we hope will happen with this sort of control. What other types of traps are available out there? What other species can be targeted? Well, one quite exciting development uh, which is going on at Rothamsted Research is that they have found that the aphid alarm pheromone, green fly alarm pheromone, which makes them get up and walk away, a uh, very similar chemical is found in catmint. And they've been growing catmint, extracting the chemical from the plant. And this process has the added advantage that cat toys can be made out of the uh, product as well. OK, so a dual purpose. Yes, indeed. But much more is in development. Many species of insects that have been investigated produce a pheromone of some type. Watch this space for further developments. That was Miracentha Lingham talking to Andrew Salisbury from the Royal Horticultural Society's entomology team about how an insect's desire to reproduce can be manipulated to stop them ruining our crops. Thank you very much, Dave. It is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Dave. And in the second question of the week, we're going to be finding out all about why it is that when you eat your breakfast, it sounds so much louder if you're listening to The Naked Scientist podcast with some of those earbuds in ear headphones in your ears that's with diana carol that's coming up shortly and also a novel use of plants because tim reggett's here from the royal college of pathologists to talk about how he's going to be doing something exciting at the chelsea flower show if you'd like to join in on the program email chris at the naked scientist.com stripping down science okay let's do it the naked scientists It's The Naked Scientist, Chris Smith and Dave Ansell, and our guests this week, James Logan and Tony Hooper, they're from Rothamsted Research, talking about how smells can be used to manipulate the behaviour of insects. Now, Diana, do you get made a meal of by mosquitoes very often? They love to eat me, they really do. I think I, I do emit those chemicals, I think. But uh, talking of eating things and eating breakfast? <laughs> well, um, if you put earplugs in your ears and uh, eat lots of noisy food, then apparently something like this happens. My name is Bullfrog, and I'm calling from Illinois in the USA. I noticed that at times when I'd put earplugs in to deaden sound from outside that, that worked really well, but then the sounds inside my head, they seemed a lot louder like chewing or humming or even breathing was really loud. And then I noticed listening to podcasts with the earbud-style headphones in my ears that I couldn't chew breakfast cereal and hear at the same time, whereas if I'm listening to a conversation without anything in my ears, it's very easy to hear and eat at the same time. So I was wondering, why is it when you have earplugs in or headphones like that, are the sounds from inside your head so much louder? So what makes your cornflakes so much louder when you try to block out the usual morning noise? I'm Trevor Cox and I'm Professor of Acoustic Engineering at the University of Salford. So why is it that when you listen to yourself when you've got earplugs in, you sound very different and all the 
sounds of munching and crunching sound very different if you eat something. When I'm speaking here, I'm not just hearing the sound coming out of my mouth, going round the side of the head and going down my ear canal. I'm also hearing my bones vibrating. It's called bone conduction. So when my vocal folds are opening and closing, when the air in my mouth is resonating, the sound is also passing through my head to my ears and being picked up as sound. So that when you block the outside pass by sticking in things like earplugs, all you can hear is the bone conduction. And actually you've got something also happening called the occlusion effect. Because you've got an earplug in, you've got a little resonant cavity in the ear canal. So actually you get a little boost towards the top of speech around 2,000 hertz. And that also means that certain sounds are amplified as well. So the occlusion effect makes noise travel along your bones rather than the air. But once it does find some air, it resonates and gets louder in the small cavity created by your ear-plugging device. My name's Dr Daniel Rowan and I'm an audiologist at the Institute of Sound and Vibration Research at the University of Southampton. In terms of an answer for the phenomenon, uh, it's probably related to a well-known phenomenon called the occlusion effect. All sounds generated within the body, such as during mastication or talking, are transmitted all around the body by the body tissues, particularly the bone. And that sort of sound escapes, if you will, into the air-filled cavities of the body, including the ear canals. Now, the sounds in the ear canals usually follows the line of least resistance and comes out of the ear canals rather than going into the eardrum and uh, into the inner ear. But when you plug your ear canal up with your finger, then that sound goes into your eardrum, into the cochlea, making things sound louder. In acoustical terms, the increase in, in the amount of sound that gets into your inner ear can be as much as 1,000 times. Uh, but in terms of how loudness we perceive it, it can be uh, five times as loud or even more. And this is a particular problem with people who wear hearing aids um, because having a hearing aid in the ear canal can make the sound of their own voice uncomfortable. Uh, and so that's sort of one problem that occurs through it. So the sound waves end up bouncing around in your cochlea and generally causing havoc once they've left your skull. And on our forum, TechMind came up with the same answer as our experts and also TurnipSock mentioned the habit of singers who put their fingers in their ears so they can hear their own voice. So moving on from head bones anyway, here's a question on something a little more paleological. Hello, I'm Bert Lattimore. I'm from Virginia in the United States. And my question concerns dinosaur ages. Somewhere I heard that the big plant-eating dinosaurs could live up to a 1,000 years. On another program or podcast, I heard that tyrannosaurs only lived 20 to 30 years, which seems very brief for such a big animal. So I'd like to know how long did the big dinosaurs live, those individual dinosaurs, and how can you tell from a fossil how long that animal lived? And following dinosaurs, I'll be investigating something a little less of this earth. Hello, I'm Jesus Zafra from Neja, Spain, and this is my question. Knowing the possibility of life somewhere in a star like our sun, do we have any possibility of communication with our nearest stars? What kind of device will be used? Thank you very much. Bye. In short, if we were to find life around a nearby star, what technology would we need to contact them? So how can we give an age to something that's been dead for more than 65 million years? And how do we build an antenna for alien messaging? They might have mobile phones, you never know. Send your answers to question of the week at thenakedscientist.com or join the debate on our forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. You've learned the answer to that, Diana, because then you can contact your relatives, can't you? Ha <laughs> ha. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com.
This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Dave Ansell. We've heard about how different chemicals in your BO can attract mosquitoes, but what about insect repellent? Does it really work? Welcome back to Kitchen Science. So far, we've proved that different people are differently attractive to mosquitoes and that eating a load of garlic for your dinner won't keep them away. But is there anything we can do to avoid being bitten? Certainly we can cover up when you go out and at uh, dawn and dusk times. That's the times when mosquitoes and other biting insects are most active. So stay indoors. If you have to go out, cover up, wear long sleeves and trousers. But also you can use insect repellents. And a repellent which contains DEET, which is a synthetic compound that was made by the, the US military back in the 1950s, is actually the best thing on the market. It works really, really well, but there are some adverse side effects. For example, it melts plastics and it's absorbed into the body. So I would follow the guidelines if you do use that product. Do you have any DEET that we can test out? I certainly do. I have a pot of DEET uh, in a formulation which we can put on our arms and, uh, and see whether we get bitten. I'm so confident that it's going to work very well that I'm going to put my arm right inside the cage this time. So this time they can actually get to you and bite you? They can indeed, but hopefully this should work and and they won't even land on me. So you obviously have a great deal of confidence in DEET. And there's a net on the side of the box. Now, so far we've only been exposing ourselves through a small gauze, but you're actually going to undo the net and plunge your hand into the box full of mosquitoes. Yep, that's right. The DEET should work really well and keep them off my arm once I put it into the cage. Let's go for it. It's the moment of truth. Okay, so your arm's clearly in the cage now, and all the motion of the box actually has kicked them up even more. But none of them are landing on your arm yet. In fact, if anything, they, they seem to be trying to stay away. They're staying near the gauze on the top. They do all seem to be staying away from your DEET-covered arm. But does DEET work on all mosquitoes? Are there some that will still be attracted regardless of the DEET? DEET works on most mosquito species very well. But in our experiments, uh, what we have found is that just occasionally you get the odd one or two which does land and begins to feed, which is quite interesting. Uh, you know, what is it about those, those individuals that means they're not responding to the DEET? What would have happened if you put your arm in without DEET? I would have most certainly been bitten uh, probably about 20 or 30 times by now. And you would have seen a big, horrible reaction on my arm. So, Emma, you turned out to be very attractive to mosquitoes. How do you feel about that? I'm slightly worried. (laughs) (laughs) I hope I don't get bitten too many times when I go away different places. And have you had much experience with mosquitoes? Do you get bitten when you're on holiday? Um, Yeah, like I said before, I tend to get bitten more on my feet, but I do get bitten quite a bit. Okay. well, obviously you'll need to wear some DEET or something like that to uh, to be careful. Yep, I'll take some DEET with me next time I go. (laughs) And Jason, you and I seem to be equally as attractive and actually not very attractive to mosquitoes. You must be pleased. Yeah, I was very happy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And again, do you find that this experiment bears truth in the real world? Do you get bitten much when you're on holiday and that sort of thing? Yeah, I I don't really remember getting bitten very often by mosquitoes. I'm guessing shows that the experiment was right. Excellent. Well, thank you both very much for joining us. That's right. Thank you very much for having us. Yep, thank you for having us. And uh, James, thank you ever so much for bringing your pet mosquitoes along to show us and for braving your arm with the deet you're very welcome (laughs) and uh, that's it for kitchen science this week we'll be back with more very soon 
You're a brave man, James. I'm not sure I'd have put my arm in a box full of mosquitoes. Thanks again to James Logan for inviting Ben over to the Rothamstead Research Institute. And James has actually filled our uh, studio this week with mosquitoes. Luckily, they're confined to a a sort of cage, and there's also a nice big pot full of mosquito larvae um, kind of swimming around over here. Absolutely wonderful. Bertin Benfleet got in touch. He said his grandson got bitten by a mosquito just over a week ago. He ended up with blood poisoning and could hardly walk. How could that have happened? I think, Bert, probably there what was happening is that the mosquito was providing a route of entry to a bacterial infection. It's probably Staph, Staphylococcus aureus or Streptococcus, which can sometimes do that. Um, here's a question for you, James. It's from Christos Quinnell. He's in Second Life. He says, are mosquitoes equally bothersome all over the world or are there some areas, except the Arctic and Antarctic, obviously, that get off a bit easier? Um, there's, well, there's lots of different species of mosquitoes and they are found right across the world. Um, but whether they're bothersome or not, I think they are bothersome because they all bite. And if they bite humans, then clearly there's a problem. But in terms of diseases, they don't spread diseases everywhere. And for example, in the UK, we don't currently have any diseases spread, spread by mosquitoes. Uh, very, very briefly, there's two people who've written to us this week, Susan Maruka and Marcy Lawson, who reckon that a particular brand of mouthwash, they say Listerine, is a mosquito repellent. They say it works to repel mosquitoes. Can you think of any basic chemistry why that should be the case? Um, There are some compounds in Listerine, such as menthol, which uh, does have a a repellent effect um, against against quite a lot of insects, actually. Um, So perhaps it does have some sort of effect. I'm not sure whether they they mean it's repellent by using it in their mouth or whether it's repellent by putting it on their arms. I'm not sure, but um, it's certainly a new one. I haven't heard of that before. Thank you very much. That's James Logan from Rothamsted Research. Now, also with us this week to tell us about a very exciting initiative happening at the Chelsea Flower Show is Dr Tim Riggett. He's a consultant virologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital. Tim, uh, James was saying, luckily, no uh, diseases in England at the moment spread by mosquitoes, but that could change, and that's the thrust of what you're doing at Chelsea this year. Yes, it is. It could change. We have the mosquitoes in this country which can transmit malaria. What we don't have is a lot of malaria for the mosquitoes to transmit but it could happen and it happened in in 1918 when people came back from the Great Wall from Thessaloniki and there was quite a sizeable outbreak in Kent and of course in previous centuries there have been outbreaks in the Fens, east of England, southern England so it could happen. So what are you trying to achieve with your stand? Because you're putting a garden into the Chelsea Flower Show from the Royal College of Pathologists. What's this aiming to achieve? There are two things, really. One is we're trying to tell people basically that the 2,000 people that get malaria each year travelling abroad to malaria's areas needn't get it if they take proper precautions. That's people coming back to this country. Yes, people coming back to this country. If they took the proper precautions, then they probably wouldn't, well, not very many of them would get infected. And there are 20 people a year die of malaria. It's not it's not funny. In the, in the UK? In the UK, yes. And the second thing is that we're trying to educate the, the people at the um, Chelsea Flower Show what plants are associated with malaria in terms of treatment with the chinchona plant where you get quinine from. Oh, right, uh, that's where it comes from. Yes. And the bark of the, of the chinchona tree, uh, 1630 was where it was first discovered and Countess of Chinchon and all that stuff. Um, Artemisia annua is a Chinese wormwood and uh, that's another plant that we grow to produce artemisin in. We're also showing plants that can repel mosquitoes, James, so hopefully there won't be very many around. I understand James is lending you some mosquitoes to show at Chelsea. He is. He's very kindly lent us <laughs> some. Uh, I think there are some in water and some flipping around in a box, but uh, I hope the, uh, the boxes are very securely fastened because I don't want them flapping around me. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much. So, Chelsea Flower Show, the Royal College of Pathologists have a wonderful stand they're going to put on in a couple of weeks' time all about how plants can be used to fend off mosquitoes and about the problem of malaria. Thank you very much, Tim. That's Tim Reggett from Addenbrooke's Hospital and the Royal College. James, I've got a question here from Chris who says, Hi, repelling mosquitoes is all very well, but we have a much greater problem uh, where I live, and that's chiggers. They're almost invisible. They're larval forms of the harvest mite, and they're the source of much pain and misery. The first you know you've got them is a large, irritating blister, which is maddening and sore for days, and I've got scars from them from two years ago. They ruin an otherwise idyllic country stay here in France. Uh, I've been planting lavender around the house and mowing the grounds, but they keep on coming. How can we prevent them? Um, Well, we have tested these repellent chemicals against uh, different species of mosquito and they work very well and also against Culicoides biting midges such as the Scottish biting midge and currently we've got some trials going on in Kenya to look at whether these chemicals repel ticks and ticks are probably more related to chiggers than than to mosquitoes because they're actually arachnids Um, so we don't actually know the results of those trials but hopefully the, the repellents will work against those as well and perhaps even against chiggers So these are the chemicals that you've got oozing out of people that you found at natural very good at, at making these things go away. That's right, yep. The, the chemicals that repel mosquitoes seem to repel other insects as well. Thanks, James. I've got another question here, probably more for you, Chris, from Monica. She's asking, why do mosquito bites itch more now that she's older? I actually f- I found the opposite thing. Now I find they itch less. What do you think? I think this comes back to what we were saying, that when the mosquito bites you, it's injecting some of its saliva, which contains this cocktail of 20 proteins. There's something to stop blood platelets, which are the little bits of cells that make blood clot. It blocks those. There's something to block your immune system, and there's something to block the rest of the blood's clotting system. That's just part of the family of proteins that go in. And your immune system is very good at reacting to foreign proteins. And so over time, the more exposure you get to these foreign proteins, the better your immune response becomes. So in some people, you just tune up your immunity, so you become very, very good at reacting to those chemicals, and that's why you get that that itchy bite mark and and over time you get a more vigorous reaction more promptly every time you're bitten because your immune system is already geared up to such a high degree to tackle the problem can your immune system change as you grow up because i found i reacted a lot more when i was a kid well the immune system is referred to as the adaptive immune system and the reason it's an immune system is because it has the ability not just to resist things but to actually change the way it works to be specific to certain targets and to become an immune system it can stop certain things so it definitely changes as you as you grow up because if you for instance catch a disease like measles or chickenpox you have immunity for life you didn't have before and now you have so it's definitely changing and so the more of something you see the better your immune system becomes at reacting to it as you get very very old though your immune system becomes less good and so we do see a phenomenon of people having more predisposition to certain problems infections and things because their immune system becomes less good as they've aged at at responding to things and that's why problems like tb can make a comeback james there's a question here for you uh it's come from pookie amsterdam who's listening in second life do women get bitten more by mosquitoes than men because i must admit i thought they did yeah there's a lot of anecdotal evidence uh to suggest that uh, some women get bitten more than men um however there's also anecdotal evidence to suggest the opposite and indeed to, that uh you know fatter people might get bitten more than thinner people uh older people more than than younger people um but really there's not a lot of scientific evidence to to back that up so at the moment we we don't really know what we do know is that mosquitoes seem to respond slightly differently to to women throughout their menstrual cycle which we think might be related to the, the hormone changes that are that are happening throughout that, that and phase. in pregnancy too aren't pregnant women more prone to being bitten or is that just because they're breathing more because they've got more tissue in their body at that time yeah there is a study that 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 showed that pregnant women are likely to be bitten more um however we don't quite understand why that is and tony there's a question here for you from george who says 
if certain plants can make things that make other plants not grow near them, does this mean you should be careful how you plant your garden? Uh, well, you certainly wouldn't want to try to grow something underneath, say, a pine tree. I don't know if you've seen, the earth is very bare under those because a lot of material gets dumped down through the, from the leaves fall underneath them. Uh, you can't grow much under a walnut tree either. That, that's not just because they're consuming all the water from the soil, so they just no, they no. consume light and water and nothing can get a, a sort of status no, there, there are compounds which are, are like <clears throat> resins which fall down onto the earth around them and they are toxic to developing plants. So you'd have to make sure that the plants you wanted to grow were away from something that was trying to defend its space. For sure. And what about the plants themselves? Because obviously they're going to set seed, so when their own seedlings try and grow, won't they be killed off by the factors coming out of the trees then? Um, I really don't know. Of those, in those specific examples, yeah, I, can't, I can't tell you, I'm afraid. So go back to the sort of garden example. Certain combinations of plants, do they behave differently when you put certain plant combinations together? Uh, well, in the garden, I'm, I'm not that much of an expert because obviously we're working with arable crops. Arable crops do try and protect their space. They do produce materials in the soil to try and defend themselves. Uh, one example is is wheat, which is what we particularly work on at Rothamsted. And wheat does respond by producing chemicals in the soil which are generally toxic both to plants and to um, the insects that are trying to colonise them. And something that we're trying to work on is being able to switch this response on or make the plant ready to respond to protect itself um, when there's no threat actually available. For instance, if you're in a field and you want, um, you know that there's some sort of insect pest coming, um, if you can alert those plants with a particular signal which will start that process, then you can control how the plant responds and make it ready to fight back against the insect pests. Without, of course, having to spray chemicals on the crop, which well, these are expensive these are, and... These signals are, of course, chemicals, but because they're used in the natural ecology of these plants anyway, they surround us in the atmosphere. Um, in fact, some of these chemicals are part of our diet. We, we, we're exposed to them the whole time, but they're produced in very small quantities. They're in the natural system anyway, so you wouldn't even know if it came from a particular person trying to introduce that into your field or whether they were there anyway. How closely related do two plants have to be not to produce these aggressive signals? So if you had two different forms of wheat, would they get along okay? Um, I, I really don't know, but I, I suppose the wheat plant must be pretty good at detoxifying those compounds if it's producing them themselves. Uh, I know some of the wheat compounds, they can be glycosylated. That means a glucose molecule or a sugar molecule is tacked onto them and that, in that form, the plant's quite happy to store them. Um, it's not toxic to the plant at all. A plant's not going to produce something that um, commits suicide for itself, no. Thanks, Tony. Well, that's it for this week. Next time, we're going to be finding out why we're li quite literally passengers in our own bodies. There are 50 times more bacteria living on us and in us than there are actually cells in our bodies. But what do these bacterial freeloaders actually do, and why are we healthier with them than without them? In fact, are we living such clean lives now that this is making us prone to disease, including allergies? Is that why aller allergic problems are at an all-time high? What are your thoughts on that? Join us next week to find out. Send me your questions, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thank you very much to our guests this week, James Logan, Tony Hooper and Tim Reggett, and to our wonderful production team, Dave Ansell, Mira Synthalingham, Ben Valster, Petra Minch and Diana O'Carroll. Have a great week. See you next time. Goodbye. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.